You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this morning. We turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 10. Our text this morning is from the verses 11 to 36. The Lord said to Moses, make two trumpets of hammered silver and use them for calling the community together and for having the camp set out. When both are sounded, the whole community is to assemble before you at the entrance to the tent of meeting. If only one is sounded, the leaders, the heads of the clans of Israel are to assemble before you. When a trumpet blast is sounded, the tribes camping on the east are to set out. At the sounding of a second blast, the camps on the south are to set out. The blast will be the signal for setting out. To gather the assembly, blow the trumpets, but not with the same signal. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to blow the trumpets. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you and the generations to come. When you go into battle in your own land against an enemy who is oppressing you, sound a blast on the trumpets. Then you will be remembered by the Lord your God and rescued from your enemies. Also at at your times of rejoicing, your appointed feasts and new moon festivals, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. On the twentieth day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the testimony. And the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. The divisions of the camp of Judah went first. Under their standard, Nation, son of Amminadab, was in command Nathanael, son of Zuar, was over the division of the tribe of Issachar, and Eliab, son of Helon, was over the division of the tribe of Zebulun. Then the tabernacle was taken down, and the Gershonites and Merarites, who carried it, set out. The divisions of the camp of Reuben went next under their standard. Elazur, son of Shadur, was in command. Shalumiel, son of Shur Sadai, was over the division of the tribe of Simeon, and Eliasaph, son of Duel, was over the division of the tribe of Gad. Then the Kohathites set out carrying the holy things. The tabernacle was to be set up before they arrived. The divisions of the camp of Ephraim went next under their standard. Elishema, son of Amiahud, was in command. Gamaliel, son of Pedajur, was over the division of the tribe of Manasseh. And Abidan, son of Gidonai, was over the division of the tribe of Benjamin. Finally, as the rear guard for all the units, the divisions of the camp of Dan set out under their standard. Ahiazur, son of Amishadai, was in command. Pajael, son of Akran, was over the division of the tribe of Asher. And Ahira, son of Enan, was over the division of the tribe of Naphtali. This was the order of march for the Israelite divisions as they set out. Now Moses said to Hobab, son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place about which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will treat you well, 
for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. He answered, no, I will not go. I am going back to my own land and my own people. But Moses said, please do not leave us. You know where we should camp in the desert and you can be our eyes. If you come with us, we will share with you whatever good things the Lord gives us. So they set out from the mountain of the Lord and traveled for three days. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Whenever the Ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. I preach to you this morning then from the book of Numbers, chapter 10, the verses 11 to 36, which we have just read together. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, last year we spent some time with a rather obscure Bible book named the book of Numbers. And in its opening chapters, we were confronted with the children of Israel as they were camping out in the desert or wilderness of Sinai. Egypt, the crossing of the Reed Sea, not actually the Red Sea, the drowning of Pharaoh's army, the making of the covenant, the giving of the Ten Commandments, all lay behind them. Indeed, momentous events lay behind them. They had been at the epicenter of a great political drama and a huge and mighty deliverance. But now they are in Sinai. What are they doing in the desert of Sinai? Well, you can say they're getting organized. Before they can go any further, some things need to be worked out, straightened out, some instructions need to be given. So first, and you can see that in the previous chapter of this book, God decrees a census, a census which reveals an army of 600,000 men and a community of around 3 million people. And second, God gives marching instructions to all the tribes, telling them how they are to march and where they are precisely to pitch their tents. As well, God defines the roles of the Levites and stipulates the duties of the various clans of Levi with respect to the tabernacle. And fourth, God lays down as well certain rules governing disease, wrongs that are done in the community, marriage regulations, as well as various vows. And fifth, God ensures that the tabernacle is dedicated, the priests are ordained, the Passover is celebrated. And finally, God gives some instructions that have to do with following a special cloud and blowing some special trumpets. All in all, the picture that we then receive here is one of God making everything as it were ready. He is busy really busy preparing, equipping, instructing, organizing, training, and teaching his people. You see, he does not want them to go any further unprepared or unorganized or even unawares. 
He wants them to be up to the great task that lies before them. And why does he want that? Well, fundamentally, he wants it because he cares. Remember, our God has chosen this people. He has delivered them. He has claimed them. He loves them. And already here, you can say, way back in the Old Testament, we catch a glimpse of who our God is and how he acts with respect to his people. How infinite his care and how great his concern. His activity then, you can say, lays the basis for the confidence that we may still have in him even today. And now, beloved, we must move on to our text. And there we see that the time for preparation is now over. It's time for Israel to pull up stakes, to leave Sinai behind, and to head out. Yes, and as the people do so, there are things revealed to us that teach us certain lessons even today. I preach to you on the following theme, marching on to the promised land. And our text teaches us about marching and obeying. Marching and inviting. Marching and relying. Well, you can see, beloved, our text opens on a very precise note. It says that on the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud, the cloud of the Lord lifted. In other words, for 11 months now, Israel has been living and adapting to the desert. But do we know what that means? Of course, I think some of us have read about it countless times. If you've been raised in a Christian home, then ever since you were a little kid, you have heard the story about the children of Israel trekking through the desert. But you know, hearing about it and understanding it are often two different things. In our mind's eye, when we think of a desert, perhaps we think of the region around Asayus, Or we think of it in terms of a huge, gigantic sandbox, the kind that we sometimes see in movies or on videos. You know, just the other week, my wife and I, as well as others who were touring with us in Israel, were traveling through the wilderness of Judea and the area around the Dead Sea. And then the reality of this place and this part of the world really hits you. This really is one of the most forbidding places on the face of the entire earth. All around you is nothing but huge hills of sand and stone, barren, dry, rugged, wind-swept. Rocks and crannies are everywhere. Dangers lurk in a thousand places. Hardly a stitch of greenery is to be seen. And above you is the sun constantly beating down upon you and blistering your skin. And at night the temperature plummets and you shrivel and shiver in your tent. Truly, this is a land of extremes, a land of great devastation and desolation. And why, when you see it, you cannot help but ask yourself, Why did the Lord insist on leading his people, Israel, through this awful wilderness? 
Well, you know, the obvious answer is that the other way, the way along the sea or along the Mediterranean Sea, would probably have led to their recapture by the Egyptians. Just because the main Egyptian army had drowned in the Reed Sea doesn't mean that there were no other Egyptian armies around to retake them and return them to captivity. But you know, that's not the only answer here. There is surely a deeper one, and it is related to the fact that in so many ways, the journey of the children of Israel through the desert mirrors the difficult journey that so many of God's people have as they travel through this life. You know, today there are those in North America who would have us believe that becoming a Christian almost automatically means that you start to walk on easy street. Come to Jesus and all of your troubles will be over. Listen to the voice of God and you can avoid sickness and poverty and distress in your life and persecution and all manner of negative things. But beloved, those are misleading voices. The Christian life has more to do with cross-bearing than it has to do with comfortable living. There are always temptations to resist, weaknesses to battle, burdens to carry, enemies to contend with. And sometimes it seems as if there's no end in sight. You notice when the children of Israel leave the wilderness of Sinai behind, where do they come to next? Verse 12 says, The cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. Another desert. Another God-forsaken place, you might say. Another wasteland. The psalmist says in Psalm 84 that the children of God go from strength to strength. But you know, he could have said that sometimes the children of God go from desert to desert. In other words, sometimes it seems as if the hardships never end. And maybe you get that feeling sometimes as well. Perhaps you have an illness that just will not let up. Or you have a child who just cannot get his or her life together. Or you have always to struggle making a living, job after job, business after business. It's always a tough go. It's always uphill. So why keep on going? Is it sheer stubbornness, dogged determination that keeps the Israelites going? Are they out to prove themselves? Or are they out to prove other people wrong? No, beloved, what keeps them going is the knowledge that the promised land lies ahead. 
They have a goal. They have an aim. There is this great incentive which is called a land flowing with milk and honey. And the same applies to us. Sometimes people openly wonder about us as well. Why do you worship the Lord every first day of the week and twice even? Why do you come together and spend so much time reading and studying a certain book? Why do you send your children to expensive schools? Why do you donate a part of your income to the causes of church and kingdom? You know, on the surface it looks like an exercise in futility and foolishness. But dig deeper. And what do you see? There is a deeper motivation. And what drives it is this vision, this vision of an eternal city that cannot be shaken. Of an everlasting inheritance that will not spoil. Of a great reunion with God and with all of his saints that constantly beckons. Christians are a people on the move. They're on the move to the new Jerusalem and to a new heaven and a new earth. And beloved, for a while at least that move goes well. When the people here in Numbers chapter 10 set out, they do so filled with determination and conviction and obedience. For notice, they follow the Lord's command precisely. Leading the way is the ark carried by the Levites. Then there are the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Next are the Gershonites and the Merarites who are carrying the tabernacle. Then come the tribes of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, and behind them the Kohathites with the tabernacle furnishings. And then we have the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And finally, the tribes of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. The overall impression is that Israel's journey through the wilderness is orderly. This is not a mob devoid of leadership and structure. This is not a community which says to itself, Oh, the Lord is being far too fussy about how we are to march through this desert. Let's just love one another and march however we like and however we see fit. Now the Israelites march from Sinai to Paran as the Lord tells them. They do so, it says, according to the Lord's command to Moses. And that means there is here no conflict between love and obedience. And I think that's something to take note of. For time and time again, I am struck these days by the fact that that so many people claim to love the Lord, but they do not listen to what the Lord says. 
If you ask whether or not they have a personal relationship with God, they will answer in the affirmative because they know that that's one of the hallmarks of biblical Christianity. But then when you see how they live and how they act with respect to the commandments of the Lord, you have to wonder. Was it not the Lord Jesus himself who said, if you love me, you will obey what I command? You see, beloved, love and obedience, love and listening are not polar opposites. They do not cancel each other out. They do not contradict each other. They belong together. Two sides of the same coin, and the coin is called serving the Lord thankfully every day. In any case, it should be noted that in our text, that when the children of Israel march from Sinai to Paran, they're filled with love and obedience. The beginning of the journey goes well. And all in all, that's a reminder to us today that our journey should not only be a pilgrimage that starts well, it should go well all along the way. And above all, it should finish well. And so let us, in spite of all the ups and downs, in spite of all the obstacles and the dangers In our Christian pilgrimage, ask ourselves, how's our journey going? Is it going well? And is it characterized by love and listening? By loving and obeying? But then, beloved, loving and listening are not the only thing that we are to exhibit along the way. There is something else as well. Look at the verses 29 to 32. There we hear Moses in conversation with his brother-in-law Hobab, or Hobab, son of Ruel. Interesting conversation. What does Moses say to him? Well, he tells him the Israelites are going to the land of promise, and he invites Hobab to join them, and to experience the good things that God has promised to them, to Israel. You'll notice that Hobab's initial reaction is not favorable. He says, no, I will not go. I am going back to my own land and my own people. But you notice, too, Moses doesn't give up too quickly. He implores him to stay. And as well, he invites him to act as Israel's eyes and ears in the desert. Probably Hobab is much more at home in the desert than Moses and those who are following him. And so what is this? Is this simply a case of Moses happening to like his brother-in-law and wanting him to join them? Or is this perhaps a case of Moses not having enough faith in God's leading and wanting some extra insurance? You know, you can always use some extra insurance along the way. 
And naturally, it's possible to put a negative spin on almost everything and anything, but but really, is that necessary here? I think there is no need to insist, as some scholars do, that, that here divine guidance is somehow clashing with human responsibility. The fact that God promises to lead his people by means of pillar and cloud doesn't mean there's no room for human helpers or assistants. For you know as well as I that so often God uses people to bring his plans to fulfillment. And that's what happens here. Moses wants Hobab to stay and to help him. He, he wants God to use him as an instrument. There is a sense in which Moses and the people need his particular gifts. But nevertheless, the story doesn't end there. For not only does Moses want to recruit Hobab to help him, he, he also wants to include him. To bring him in. And we need to realize that Hobab as such is no Israelite. He's actually a foreigner, Midianite or a Kenite. And so what business, we might ask, does Moses have inviting him to come along and to join the people of Israel? What right does he have to do that? My beloved, he has every, every right. I remind you that even in the Old Testament, there is nothing that precludes an Israelite from inviting a Gentile to join the people of God. If a Rahab and a Ruth can join them, and a Hobab and join them as well. You see, Moses has a passionate desire to see his brother-in-law and his family included among the clans of Israel. Yes, and as far as we know, he succeeds. Later on in Judges 1.16, we're told that the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the men of Judah to live among the people. And as we reflect on this, what does it teach us? Surely, it reminds us that as we go on our pilgrimage through life, we shouldn't just keep our eyes fixed on the goal, but we should also yearn and long for others to join us. You know, if we're convinced that nothing compares to the prize that awaits us at the end of our journey, then we should go out of our way to tell others about the journey and the prize and invite them to travel with us. Oh, and then the journey may at times be hard and difficult, but God, God is there. 
And as for the goal, the climax, the end of the journey, it is worth every sacrifice and every trial imaginable. So come along and join us, Moses says to Hobat. Join the people of God. Walk in the ways of life and salvation. And we should issue the same invitation to our unbelieving friends and neighbors. Come and join us. The journey is worth it. And the climax, well, that's beyond imagination and description. But you know, beloved, if Moses is convinced of all of this, he's also convinced of something else. He's convinced that as God's people travel into the great future, they never do so alone. And this is not supposed to be a solitary pilgrimage. And to prove it, look at the custom, or maybe the tradition that Moses develops. We don't read anywhere that God tells him to do this, but he does it. In verse 35, whenever the ark sets out, Moses would say, Rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. And by the same token, whenever the ark came to rest, Moses would shout, Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. Moses thus made a habit of shouting, Rise up, O Lord, and return, O Lord. What's Moses doing here? Well, you can say he's reminding the people to keep the Lord their God always before them. Because their God cannot be seen with the naked eye, the people of Israel are in constant danger of forgetting and overlooking the presence and the power of their God. And at the same time, Moses is also reminding the people that it's the Lord, the Lord alone, who defeats their enemies and wins their victories. You know, so often we people fall into the trap of thinking that, oh, we can do it. Who needs God? We can do it. We only need God when we're stuck. But for all the other things in life, we can do it ourselves. Conceit, pride, stubbornness. So often they're with us. And that's why Moses establishes a new tradition here. And no doubt he hopes the Israelites will take it over en masse. He wants the whole assembly to shout every time the ark sets out, Rise up, O Lord! And he wants the same assembly to shout every time the ark sets down, Return, O Lord! You see what he's trying to do? 
is to foster a spirit of daily, conscious, deliberate dependence on God among this people of God. It's called keeping the Lord always before us. It's called never ever losing sight of Him. Yes, and that is the spirit that I dare say we still need today. Only today we are urged by the author of the letter to the Hebrews to look for strength and help, not just to God the Father, but also to God the Son. Do you remember what he says in Hebrews 12, verse 2? Fix your eyes on Jesus. And why? Well, because he's the author and the perfecter. Of our faith. Notice, don't just glance at Jesus once in a while. Don't just take a cursory look when it suits you. No, the writer of this letter says, fix your eyes. Concentrate your attention on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. You see, as you travel down the road of the Christian life, you always need to have a reference point. You always need to fix your eyes on Jesus. And why? Well, because no one has traveled this road in a better manner. And no one has traveled it in a more perfect manner than he did. And no one has done more for us along the way. No one has shouldered such a burden for us and gone through so deep a valley of suffering for us. And neither has anyone ever won a victory like he has won for us. Victory over sin and judgment and death and Satan. Christ has won it all. And it's this same living Christ who stands ready to help us today as we continue on our pilgrimage. And indeed, he invites you and I, come to me, all you who get weary and heavy burdened along the way, come to me, and I will give you rest. Christ will go with us. Christ will give us rest. And be assured that one day he will bring an end to our wandering days. A complete, perfect, glorious, and indeed mind-boggling end. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.